So let me, let me start off with this provocation. I think it's far easier for us to teach organizational actors, leaders, and stakeholders mm -hmm. the right language and change nothing about their attitudes and their behaviors. And that does nothing, in fact, to move the needle on inclusion. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. If you've been listening to me do this podcast for two years now, you know that a lot of the guests who come on talk about the power and importance of diversity. It's, I think, a well-recognized fact that diverse companies perform better. But it's also dawning on organizations that diversity is not enough. You can bring diverse groups of people to the table, but if they don't feel that they can speak up, if they don't feel that their story matters, they'll either leave, be demotivated, or simply not provide the benefits that their perspectives should offer. That's why diversity must be complemented by inclusion. But what exactly is inclusion? How do you make it happen? What does it look like? How do you deal with uncomfortable realities? How do you speak up when you don't feel included? These are all questions that people struggle to answer. It's part of why the Humphrey Group is launching a brand new program called Inclusive Leadership. We're very excited and proud to be rolling out. And it's also why we're spending the time to talk to bright people who have deep expertise in this area. One of those individuals is Numan Ashraf. Numan is a professor at Rotman School of Business, and uh, he'll tell you about his many uh, titles there in a moment. But what you need to know is that he is one of the most dynamic and compelling speakers on the topic of inclusion today. He's also an incredible follow on social media. I highly recommend you track him. And so it's my pleasure to welcome Numan Ashraf to the podcast to talk about the why and how of inclusion. Enjoy. Numan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bart. Pleasure to be here. And I'm going to hope I get this right. I'm going to read through your many credentials. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we, we won't use the whole podcast, so I'm sure we could. So you are an assistant professor at the Rotman School of Management, which for those of you who have not spent their life in Toronto, is the uh, University of Toronto's business school. That's right. And you are in the organizational behavior department, is that? Is there that we right? are, yes. So it's organizational behavior and human resources management. So we study individuals, organizations, teams, processes, and so on. And my, my three areas are social innovation, governance and leadership, and what I call emancipatory leadership or leading across differences. We're going to talk about that today. Indeed. And then you are also, to do justice, you're also a teaching fellow at the Institute for Gender and the Economy. At, at Rotman, indeed. So at when, when we think about... How much of you know corporate life is gendered? Uh, we think of the, the the kind of gender tax that women have to to pay uh, with regard to their promotion and their selection and their participation 
Uh, it's it's kind of ridiculous. So it I'm is, and, it, and it's, yeah. it's persisted. I mean, my, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to have uh, worked for a female founder. Yeah. And so she long had a passion for diversity inclusion. Our Taking a Stage program for women leaders started almost 20 years ago. Nice. We've reached, you know, over a million women worldwide. And I, and I have to say, in my 20 years, I'm disappointed with how little progress has been made on everything from the pay gap to yeah. seniority. I had um, on this podcast earlier this year, Jennifer Reynolds. I don't know if you know Jennifer. I know the name. She used to run Women in Capital Markets. Yes, of course, yeah. And we were talking about just this problem, why yeah. it persists. So, you know, maybe we'll get into some of the solutions today. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that, that, that I think we'll get a chance to talk a bit about is how do we get these various identities to intersect? And how do we use that intersectional lens around leadership without just using the words and understanding what the essence of the phenomena are attached to it. And what do you mean by the phenomena? So I'm a, I see myself as a bit of an organizational phenomenologist. Okay. That throws you off. I've never that, heard that, so. Yeah, so what that means is, is I think that a lot of people play what I call the lingo bingo hmm. game. Right, they throw words around, they use terminology, acronyms. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, so let me, let me start off with this provocation. I think it's far easier for us to teach organizational actors, leaders, and stakeholders mm-hmm. the right language and change nothing about their attitudes and their behaviors. And that does nothing, in fact, to move the needle on inclusion. Instead, what we have to do is we have to decipher, break apart, and put back together the phenomenon of inclusion, exclusion, thinking about what is the difference between diversity by default into going into the realm of inclusion by design. We'll talk a bit about that. So I think you know, a phenomenologist is somebody who says, what's operational here? What's actually happening? Right. As opposed to how can I just you know, give you some language to understand this? Right. Can, I, can I give you some tools, some frameworks, some approaches, some tips to get you out of the space into a different space? And do you approach this uh, from the position of working with individuals or do you approach this from the position of working with an organizational systems and structures? Yeah, nice. Terrific question. I, I, I think that should be the topic of your next book. <laughs> okay, we, we should we'll, we'll together. co-write it. Yeah, we'll exactly. Co-write it. exactly. I swore I'd never write another book on my own. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I would say the following. Uh, you know, my, my entry point into the work is this, that leadership work is people work. If you can't love them, you can't lead them. Asterisks. One more time. Leadership work is people work. If you can't love them, you can't lead them. Now, here's the asterisks. It's not that you have to love everyone that you lead, but in everyone that we lead, there must be something that we love to see grow and develop. I like that. So when we, in fact, don't see others as being worthy of growth or development, and, and what gets in the way of that sometimes is the fact that they're different or we experience them as being so odd or so unfamiliar, we actually shortchange our ability as leaders to live up to our leadership obligation. And is that because we look at them and we say, well, they are different, and so I'm not going to develop them? Or, or it's just too much work. Or I, I don't want to trip up on you know, wires or lingo or whatever else. I'm just going to kind of play nice. Hmm. I think Canadians have this particular problem. I call it the tyranny of politeness. Hmm. Right? So we try to play it safe. And in so doing, what we do is we don't get to the phenomenon of engagement, we, we, we set the bar and mere tolerance. And that, to me, is just such a waste. And so we just coexist, but don't really create an inclusive workplace. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I want to go just even before the workplace. Uh, we don't think about the power of what voice is. 
Now you're somebody who understands communication really well. I mean voice in that sense as well, in terms of how it's it's a medium for communication. But I also think that, that voice is very much about creating the space for people to make agency real. Okay, and what, how does that tie into inclusion? So I would say that the metric, the fundamental metric mm-hmm. of an inclusive organization is simple. What is it? It's an organization where every story matters. And so for me to share, you know, just in the way that you, you did, when you spoke about your journey into entrepreneurship, you had the privilege of working with, learning from, and acquiring the business from a female entrepreneur. Yes. That's your story. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that your ability to own that, your ability to share that, your ability to reflect on that and to say that's what informs who you have become, and for others to, to acknowledge it, uh, gives you legitimacy. When our stories are heard, when they are seen as being legitimate, when they are seen as being equal, um, you change the dynamic. I'll give you a small example of this. I pay a lot of attention as I teach to which pictures I'm using in, in the, the background of my slides. My slides are mostly pictures, a few words here and there. Well, you're, right. you, you could teach our courses. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. We should talk about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then think about which ones am I drawn to, which ones are iconic, and which ones aren't. Right, so think about the mix of how many uh, male-female, how many are people of racialized backgrounds, uh, the, the generational difference, even how many are, I, I would say, iconographic, i.e. pictures of people, mm-hmm. versus iconoclastic, things in which you can't tell who the person is. And all of those choices speak to a particular way of storytelling. Right. And I think that the more, so, you know, for me, the, the fundamental truth also is, also is, you can't be what you can't see. Right. Well, you know, it's really interesting. You know, I have three kids, and so we do a lot of reading at home. And, you know, what I've come to know this, you know, through raising my own awareness about unconscious bias. And, and as you said, you know, the images that we select. Now I look at the books, and I know this, you know, how male-dominated the heroes tend to be, and how they're almost all white. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm thinking to myself, if I was a person of color, yeah. I would not see myself in those stories. And so back to your point around you can't be what you can't see. Mm -hmm. It must be um, unsettling. (laughs) I mean, so think about this in the context of our First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and Indigenous communities. Think about what it means for us as settlers and immigrants to be on treaty land and not to have their stories inform how we think about our work. And not only as to what a glaring omission that is, but in my work, right? In my work as somebody who does leadership development, there's so much wisdom mm-hmm. to build on, mm-hmm. to learn from, not to appropriate, but to learn from. And I think that unless we can call that out, and so I begin every session that I, that I teach with a land acknowledgement, it's going beyond just a, a mere recommendation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to something more fundamental to me, which is this. That universities and academics only exist for two reasons. Reason number one, to create knowledge. And reason number two, to disseminate knowledge. Mm. And we can't either create knowledge or disseminate knowledge adequately if we don't acknowledge the knowledge systems of the ones who have come mm. before us. And hence that broader context of stories that matter and are heard. So, so that's a really clear, and I appreciate your definition around inclusion, because I think it's a word 
that gets thrown around a lot yeah. without a clear definition. And so I like you know an inclusive place, not just a workplace, but inclusive environment is one where every story matters. Yeah. So if that's the case, why, well, maybe I'm presupposing something. How inclusive do you think most workplaces are or are not? Yeah. I, I think that a lot of times when we talk about measuring the, the extent of inclusion, what I get thrown at me are input measures. Meaning? Well, here's what we're doing. We have a strategy, we have a program, we have an initiative, we have a poster, we have a sticker. Mm-hmm. All those things are okay. Mm-hmm. I think what I don't get is what are the outcome measures? Hmm. To what extent are they actually representing an impact? Yeah. Well, but how would you quantify a workplace? I mean, you said the one metric of an inclusive yeah. environment is one where every story matters. Yeah. Well, how, metric implies a quantification. So sure. what is that? Sure. So I, we, can, we can begin by quantifying A, who's at the table. Okay. Right, so you can talk about composition. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, think about not composition in absolute numbers, but across the spectrum of the organizational hierarchy. Hmm. Think about what kind of tasks are delegated to whom, mm-hmm. subconsciously. Right. Like who does administrative work? Is it all female? Right. Right? Who does the front-facing work? Are they all people that represent the dominant group? Who are the line mm-hmm. leaders? Yeah. Well, we have one, one client, um, leading financial services firm. Yeah. We built a program for them um, because of their commitment to people uh, who are new to the country, who are not well represented right. in their management. And they say, oh, why, why are these people there? Well, yeah. a lot of things you talk about, they said, we don't see ourselves in the senior positions. Yeah. Yeah. And they also come from places where the dominant means of promotion is different, self-promotion. Yes. yes. And so people in the you know cultural group there said, well, they're they're not speaking up, they're not yeah. telling their accomplishments. Yeah. So there was a recognition that the the talent was not at the table. Yeah. And so they they really wanted to create different paths for these people to understand that they should be in senior positions. Think about what you just said. The talent's not at the table. Mm-hmm. How do we even define what constitutes talent? Mm. Right? So I think for the longest time, there has been this thinking that's dominated, which is the attributes right, of leaders, which I think is just BS. And of yeah. course, by that, I mean bold statement. Uh, what, I'm, <laughs> what I'm suggesting is we have to look at behaviors. Right. Leadership and, behaviors. and you're saying that for the longest time, essentially what we've defined as the characteristics of leader really are just the characteristics of the dominant group. Correct. A selection White of the men. dominant group. <laughs> for yeah, yeah, primarily? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, in fact, you know, type A white men mm-hmm. who have been varsity athletes who have led a particular way of command and control leadership, mm-hmm. who brought that into organizations. Like the Jack Welches of the world. I mean, I remember, yeah. you know, the days where he was held up as the uber leader. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, talk to people who work for Jack, though. To oh, get they the hate perspective, it. Right? Yeah. He was known as Neutron Jack, right? Because he came into GE, like the, the buildings remained and everyone else was gone, like a neutron bomb. I want to quote another guy who is, you know, I think a little bit younger, certainly a little bit younger uh, than Jack Welch. I get in trouble now by saying these things, right? <laughs> uh, and that is Tom Peters. Mm-hmm. And Tom Peters, in his work on excellence, mm-hmm. says something that I think is quite profound, which is, it's simple but profound. Excellence is the next five minutes or it's nothing. Now, I, don't, I want to apply that, that paradigm into inclusion. I want to say to you that inclusion is the next interaction or it's nothing. So I don't care what's written on the walls. What I, care, what I care about is what's happening in the halls, right? You can have the most amazing, you know, sophisticated, wordsmithed mission statement. But the question is, 
how does that translate into choices? And how do you bring that mindfulness into choices? Right. And what do you mean by choices? Again, who gets to speak? Who gets uh, relegated to which tasks? Right. Who gets to represent? Who gets to negotiate? Who gets credibility by the, by the name or the moment they show up versus someone who you know, has to prove themselves right. over and sometimes over and sometimes over again. Right. So when you go to organizations and they, because as you mentioned, you're in addition to being a professor, you're someone who actually does work with companies. I do. Uh, do they approach you and say, we recognize that we need to be more inclusive? Is that, is that the starting point for their work with you? Yeah, you know, it's funny. So I would say the starting point of the work with them almost always is we like what you have to say. We want to translate that into our context. Okay. Would you come and talk to our top people? Sprinkle some of your... Yeah, magic dust. Right? <laughs> as, as they say, share some of your nuances. Yeah. Right? Oh. <laughs> yeah. And so that, it begins like that. So I think that it begins with a dialogue, typically at the executive level. Mm-hmm. And then I'm asking a very simple question. What do you ask? What's, what's your why? Like, why do you want to be inclusive? And what are the typical answers you hear? I think for the longest time, it used to be a compliance answer. Like, we don't want to get in trouble. So people actually say that. Yeah, like we don't know how to operate. We just don't know what that means okay. for us, right? Uh, and sometimes it's about our well, competitors are doing it, mm-hmm. so we don't know where to start, mm-hmm. which I think is a really honest answer. But I think that the, the, the answers that are, not that I look for, that I, I'm most pleased with, is to say it's part of who we believe in being. And to me, that's a developmental aspiration. And that, the, that there's a business case for, I mean, there's been a long, you know, McKinsey, others have long quantified the impact of diverse organizations. Is there now a similar business case being built around having an inclusive organization? Yeah. So I have two minds on that. So I think that, you know, in the old days, Albert Bandura, the psychologist, once said that that which gets measured gets done. Yep, it's often quoted. <laughs> right. And I have an addition to that. Mm-hmm. Not only is it true that that which gets measured gets done, that which gets measured gets gained. So I think that sometimes organizations, when they insist on the business case for diversity or inclusion, um, can dehumanize their organizational actors in the process. So they aim for the hit the number rather than to have people feel that every story matters. Yeah, and, and I think that it's not intentional necessarily, but I do think that there's, there are things like tokenism mm-hmm. that, that you can fall into. And, and, a, and a phrase that I like is placism. Placism? I yeah. haven't heard that so one. So placism is this idea that there's a place for you within the organizational structure. Okay. And don't you dare go beyond that. Ah. Right? And so it's not... So we want you, but in this box. <laughs> this whole idea of being too big for your britches, right? Don't, don't exceed that. And I think there's nothing more infuriating to any one of us than that. Like, who, who are people telling us what our you know, top line possibility is. Like, who the hell is that? Like, who, who, and what who a loss for the organization, too. But the funny thing is, people internalize that. Like, a lot of coaching, mentoring conversations, unfortunately, guide people into these dead ends that become self-fulfilling prophecies. Right. And I think that we have to be mindful of how we do that. Like, and, and I think that the way to get past placism is to ask two questions. Number one, what do people need to be excellent and number two, how do we align their vision of excellence with what's required and what's possible in their work? And I think unless we can do that, we're really not giving people the, the real opportunity to, to contribute. Right. So is that the role of leaders to Absolutely. find that, that intersection point? 
it's to create it's to create the possibility for them to have impact. And and the extent to which it's aligned, right, between what the organization wants to do and what the right. other person wants to do and what they need to be excellent to create that alignment. Mm. And, and and I'm not and one more thing. To hold them to account. Mm. To hold the people who you're trying to bring to excellence. Absolutely. Right. Like accountability is a real measure for me. Right. So they they have it's a kind of a partnership. I'm gonna provide you with clarity, I'm yeah. gonna provide you with organizational resources, but you have a role to play in it as well. Let might be set against might. To those whom more is given, from them more is expected. Thomas Jefferson. So let, let's look at this because we're now transitioning to talking about what people can do to create an inclusive workplace. Okay. I mean, obviously there are some people who will, who are heads of diversity and inclusion or yeah. who, who run entire organizations. And for them, you know, they can hire you to talk about organizational structure and culture. Sure. What I'm interested in knowing is someone listening who maybe runs a team yeah. uh, in a large organization, maybe yeah. is uh, a passionate about this cause, yes. but who has no direct reports. Yeah. Someone who is competing for an executive position in an organization where they're not talking about the power of inclusion, but they believe it. What advice, where do you start? Where do you start if, if you have the sense, as someone does, that I want every story to matter in my part of the organization or in the company? What's the starting point? I, I begin by having a conversation about what are the pain points. Okay. So where do you think you're struggling? And then I ask, well, how do you know that? So, so what would you hear typically? Like if you were talking to someone who wasn't in the C-suite. Well, so typically, if I'm talking to folks that are not in the C-suite, it's about the elephants in the room. Mm, no one's... Mm-hmm. So what kind of elephants would they point to? <laughs> Composition mm. of teams. The inadequacy of policies. Things of that nature. Right. Um, or they'd say work allocation, you know. I wish they did. Oh, really? But they don't even go there. Really? I think they're just stuck on, like, how do we get started? Sometimes they're also stuck on compliance. Like, I, I don't know what to do when people want a day off or this holiday or that holiday. I don't know, you know which ones. I don't even... So, so there's this idea somehow that if we, if we really let people ask for what they need, we'll be overwhelmed. Right. But that's nonsense. It's kind of like the old thought, if we let people work from home, they'll do nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but it's also this idea that somehow, look, if we don't see, and we don't have the honesty to share mm-hmm. what, the, what the outcome is and what the process is and how they have to come together, you will never get followership. So a leader just can't say, okay, I'm going to you know, paint a picture of possibility. Right. You've got to paint a picture of possibility in which others can see themselves. And so for inclusion, if you want, let's say you're a vice president, you lead a large organization, yeah. and you say, look, I recognize we need to improve inclusion yeah. in our organization. We have people who have told me that their stories don't matter. We've yes. had people who have left because they don't feel that they have a path to leadership. Yeah. And they say, I, can, I would like to, I have a vision where we, we move past those things and we have an inclusive workplace. Yeah. How do I give the accountability and authority to my organization? What would you advise them to do and say? So I think you have to model it by saying, I am going to, I as the CEO or the you know, CHRO or the, 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 you know, put the C-suite title in there, mm-hmm. will say that I don't have all the answers and I'm going to go through a process of upskilling, retooling, and modeling the kind of shifts that I have to make in my behavior. And when people see that, it's no longer a fad. So they're showing their humility and willingness to work at it. 100%. Mm-hmm. And it begins with them being vulnerable and saying, I don't have all the answers. Right. I, I think, you know, 
Aristotle once said that practical wisdom is a combination of moral will and moral skill. So you can have the most. So you can have the will, but <laughs> if you don't have the skill, you're not going to make any make any progress. I also think that you have to ask the question: How does the inclusion imperative, I call it an imperative, intersect with our strategy? And do, uh, I imagine that a lot of executives never answer that question. They don't, because a lot of them are still stuck in the opening frame. Let's not got, get into trouble. Right. Right. It's defense for them. It is defense to them. But, but I, I think they're missing the whole idea that leadership work is people work. Right. And, if you, and strategy is driven by your people. Yeah. And, you know, the wisdom of crowds, right? If we can get, you know, disparate points of view together, you'll have a better strategy and execution. If you're actually able to access all the disparate, right. disparate the, points the, of view. Right. And they don't succumb to the groupthink or the dominant personalities. Yeah. So then, okay, so you start, you have the intention, you have the will, yeah. and then you start to model it. Then can, what? Can I just say one thing? Yeah, yeah. Even at that point at the start, you've got to actually ask the question, why do we care about this? If, so, I mean, you know, just recently, Don Cherry had a wonderful oh, yeah. faux pas, right? But it's more than a faux pas. I was going to say, it's, it seems like it's a faux pas is something that's inconsistent with his long history. Yeah, so but let's this, talk about that for a second. Yeah, so so he said, it. you know, these people come over here, you like our, our way of life, and you should buy a few poppies. This idea of, you know, we have to now be inclusive because of these people coming to organizations is absolutely problematizing inclusion. Mm-hmm. That somehow it's an imported phenomenon, uh, an issue that, that we have to now deal with because of these people. Let's, let's, let's remember our First Nations again. I was going to say, we are, those we people, are all those people, right? <laughs> right, except them. <laughs> right, and, and so I, I just don't think it's about equivocation of suffering, mm-hmm. but it's about style flex. It's about having the humility to say, we need to actually deal with this. Look, I'll give you a small example. You can have a team of, you know, um, swamps, single, uh, <laughs> sorry, straight, started. white, able-bodied, you know, males, right? And with a particular personality. Yes. Right? But you can have a huge difference around urban versus rural, right. socioeconomic diversity, learning styles and abilities. Right. And so on and so forth. So, you know, family status. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a factor of who looks different. Right. It's how you it's, think. Yeah, it's the it's perspective you, th- you bring. And experiences. Mm-hmm. Right. But I still think that we force a very quick narrowing, narrowing of experiences. And is it because it's uncomfortable to deal with the different? 100%. It's it takes easier. more work. It, it, it is easier to go with the flow. My colleague and friend, Andras Tilschek, and his co-author, uh, Chris Clearfield, talk about in their book called Meltdown, they talk about this idea of diversity as a speed bump effect on teams. So when you have diversity on teams, you have to work a lot harder to get clarity on assumptions and definitions right. and understanding of outcomes. Right. But because you're able to do that, if you do, do that well, it is a speed bump to a meltdown, to a decision failure. Right. It's more work, but it's worthwhile work. So now let me talk about something that's uncomfortable for all. Let's do it. Which is to say... Okay, so what if I'm on the receiving end of ways in which I am negatively impacted? Okay. Give me so, an so micro microaggressions. Right. You know, I'm spoken over. I'm not looked at. I'm not given the same level of, of attention or time. Eye rolls, uh, the heavy size, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. I want to flip that on its head, and I, I, I say to my coaching, you know, executives or clients or colleagues, I say to them. We need to actually embrace the opportunity and the agency that we have to engage in what I call micro acts of courage. Hmm. So the behavior that we walk past is the behavior that we enable. So as a leader, you can have the courage to ask people to tell their stories. But I'm also hearing 
If you are on the other side, you need to speak up, have the micro courage, make sure your story is heard. Or if you see behaviors that are uh, (laughs) intentional or otherwise, creating a non-inclusive workplace, you have to speak up as well. Yeah, and and saying that I am going to make a mistake. I am going to trip up and use the wrong pronoun or the the wrong particular form of vocabulary, Mm. but I need to be open to learning through it. Right? It's not about perfection. It's not about being 100% right. It's but about it's also practicing. about embracing the work. I mean, you look at some, like you look at Jordan Peterson, yes. who's, who my understanding has just said, I don't want to do it. <laughs> yes. What's your take on his, his perspective? I mean, look, I, I don't actually have a perspective on him. I, and, and the reason for that is not that I'm shying away from the question. I just don't think he's worth the commentary. Yeah. No, no, but I'll tell you. I'll tell you I mean, <laughs> my, my view is, like, I, I'm, I am wary of people who offer generalized statements that can be interpreted you know, six ways to Sunday. Right. All of this stuff seems like that. Yeah, they're me. all platitudes. Right. Yeah. What, what I, what, you know, the metric I have for myself and others, right? Mm-hmm. How diverse is the team that I hire? Hmm. What, what is the composition of people with whom I spend the majority of my time? Right. If you ask outside me. Outside of work. Mm-hmm. Are, outside fine. of work, in work, around right. myself, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I look at the socioeconomic distribution of people that I spend my time with, that tells me a lot about what I, who I value and what I value. Right. You know, where are they on the faith spectrum? Where are they ethnoculturally, gender-wise, sexual orientation, right. class level ability, and, and how do they come together? Right. And do I, in fact, give some of them more of my time, more of my attention because of similarity? Well, and you know, it, it's a great point. I, I, my wife and I were reflecting on this, how you know, almost all the people we hang out with, there is kind of a common socioeconomic yeah. background. Yeah. And we're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is, uh, <laughs> it kind of creeps up on you yeah. as you reach middle age. <laughs> And I think that one of the things we have to be mindful of, right, is this. We, we talk a lot about empathy in leadership, and rightfully so. But you can't empathize with an idea. Right. You can only really empathize with an experience. With an experience, not even a person. With experience. Mm-hmm. So you actually have to have that experience. And you, is it that someone has to share that experience with you? Is that... You have to be in the experience with them. With them. Right? So I, I you know, so if I say... Uh, and Corinne and I were just talking about this, about, you know, shoveling our neighbor's driveways, right? It, like, it's, it's, it's community building right. at its finest. Ain't no part, like, it's no shoveling party because there's no shoveling party, don't stop. Exactly. Right? Every so day. Every single day. So, <laughs> I mean, I, th- it's, I think it's that. It's also getting out of this comfort zone in our heads of saying, yeah, 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 you know, I know who my neighbor is. But you don't. Like, I, I learned all kinds of amazing things about my neighbor. I, I didn't know, for example, I knew his wife was expecting I didn't know that she's expecting, like, on the 21st of December. I didn't know that his son's birthday, Junior's birthday, is on the 21st of January. I, I didn't know that, in fact, that we have a friend in common. Mm. So all these things, you know, over the, the 40 minutes of shoveling. Yeah, you learn. <laughs> y- you do. Yeah. So let's imagine that you want to start the practice. I mean, I'll just put myself here. And, you know, we're a company that's committed to diversity and inclusion. I know we can do better, and I know I can do better personally to create an inclusive workplace. Yeah. Where should I start? <laughs> So I'm going to give you some homework, Great, Bart. So I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you to identify someone in your network, perhaps even in your company, that you don't get along with. Hmm. And I want you to have coffee or lunch with them. I think that this work requires for us to you know, take our own sharp elbows, mm-hmm. turn them inward, and offer up a handshake, preferably with a, with a cup in it that has the, the beverage of, of preference for the other person. And the agenda for this meeting 
is not to solve these seemingly intractable problems, but just to say, tell me a story. And learn more about that person. Yeah. Without any kind of ulterior motive other than just to hear about who they are. That's, that's one part. The second part is within our own networks to do a bit of network analysis. And to say, I mean, I appreciate your candor earlier on, which is to say I don't see a lot of socioeconomic diversity in folks with whom I associate. Shift that. So instead of going to Buka, right, for lunch mm-hmm. or wherever else you go, uh, go to Gerard Street East. Mm-hmm. Go to a, uh, you know, Queen West restaurant. Go to, in the suburbs, a place where a lot of people don't look like you or drive the same cars like you or use the same more transportation like you. Go and eat. And, and see what the experience is like, mm-hmm. Right. And to get uncomfortable in that moment and then to spark conversation with people around you and say, what yeah. brings you here? Hmm. I always do this when I go to a restaurant. Hmm. And I ask people, I'm like, what do you order and why? Right. How'd you find this place? And I think that what that does is that it creates a sense. I mean, you'd be surprised by how many people are, are freaked out or creeped right. out. Why is, it, why is he talking to me? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just speaking candidly, even yeah. when, you're, when you're saying that, I'm like, my heart rate rises a little bit because yeah. it's an experience that I don't undertake very often. And, and that's the key, right? Because you're... And neural passageways, different ones are being activated. Mm. You know, you've got this idea of fear, the amygdala hijack. You want to, you know, uh, go right down the path of fight or flight. Right. But instead, you just, you want to override that with the driver of curiosity. No, I'm just, I'm going. The, the objective of this is to have a new meal, to meet some new people, and literally to have some other experiences with right. whom I can empathize. Now, I'm not suggesting they'll all be great meals or great experiences. You may get shut down yeah. and then, you know, go do your own thing. But I think that's where it has to begin. And the last thing I'll say is catalog your experiences, Mm. right? Uh, Drive for insight and ask the question, what do I learn about myself? And not in a way that is down on yourself, but just like what are some areas that I discovered about myself around competencies, around skills, around preferences even, right? right? That I didn't like. And And I think that... You know, I've had numerous examples like this. I'm going to share just one with you. So this is about 12, 13 years ago now. I was taking a a mediation course at a law firm. And I was at the University of Toronto. I hailed a cab because I I don't like being late. It was a Monday morning. I had to be there for 8.30. And it was now 8.05. I was like, I don't know what. I I hailed a cab. Get a cab. Cab's nice. It's clean. Start talking to the guy, and uh, you know, I, I said to him, "Look, I need to get there." He drops me off. He goes, "What time are you done?" As I'm done at four. He goes, "I'll come pick you up if you like." He goes, "Perfect, right? That'd be great because mm-hmm. I can come back to my office, do a couple more hours of work, and then head home." Now, the first day of this three-day program, they finished at three thirty, in fact, three twenty, I think, right? And I'm now in a, in a moral quandary. Do I wait? Asked, <laughs> do I wait? Right? Because I've given my word. But I don't want to be cooling my heels for 40 minutes. Right. So as I'm thinking about what I should do, I come down the stairs. I come out and the guy's there. It's 325. He's already there. So I'm like shocked. I said, listen, I, I'm so grateful that you came. He goes, no, no, no. He said, I didn't take a, a fare from 3 o'clock on. Wow. Because they're taking me to the airport. Right? So I just said, at 3 o'clock, I cut it off. I want to make sure that I was here for you early. This person, his name is Iskander, has become a friend of mine. Hmm. I would tell the story about this guy. So I, you know, he picked me up second day and third. So I asked him his story. I said, tell me your story. He comes from this city of Harar in Ethiopia. 
but he comes here by way of Italy. So I said, you're in Rome for a few years. What are you doing? So I was translating. So translating. So he speaks fluent Italian. <laughs> and he, he speaks Amharic. So I said, who are you translating for? So he pulls out a picture. It's Pope John Paul II. Wow. He was a personal translator. Wow. An emissary of the Pope to the Ethiopian community, largely refugees. Amazing. Living in and around the Vatican. It, this blows my mind, right? It, it blows my mind to what a story. <laughs> to think about the sophistication of the people and experiencing them, what we can learn from them, mm-hmm. if only we paid attention to their stories. Mm-hmm. And that's the point I want to make. Like I, I think just being open to that, right. giving people a chance, and ourselves the opportunity to learn can get us in a state of grace. And I'm going to close with a quote from the E.J. Pratt Professor of Canadian Literature. His name is George Eliot Clark. He happens to be a friend of mine. He's also formerly the, um, the poet laureate for our, for our country. And George Eliot Clark, in his uh, poem called Marginalia, says the following. He says, grace is excellence performed casually. I like it. Grace is excellence performed casually. When we have leaders, ordinary citizens, colleagues and friends who embrace the work of inclusion, they enter a state of grace. And they do it so well, not because it's effortless, but because it's excellence from casual. Thank you for your time. It's been a real treat. It has been a real treat. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking a lot away, and I appreciate uh, the grace with which you talk about this important subject. My pleasure. So for those listening, if they want to read more about you or see you in action, yes. uh, I know they can follow you on Twitter. They can follow me on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, but not really. Uh, and... Uh, certainly just uh, to, f- I think the Twitter is a gateway to, uh, to me, it's, it's a gateway to what we're doing at the Rotman School, what I'm doing, um, and, and just kind of, I have a, a kind of a daily reminder Yes. Um, that I hope can be uh, beyond inspiration, double, help people double down on their purpose. Right. right? I like it. It's been a great, you've been a great follow for me. <laughs> uh, likewise. So I enjoy right it. I Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Numan Ashraf, who is without a doubt one of the most dynamic and thoughtful speakers on the topic of inclusion. And I would encourage you to follow him on social media. We'll put his uh, details in the show notes and to practice the uh, exercises that he offered. Um, it's, uh, it's something that we all have to consciously engage in if we're going to create inclusive workplaces. Next time on the Inspire podcast, we talk values, and I'm pleased to welcome Cam Hicks. Cam is the global head of human resources for Teleflex. And if you haven't heard of Teleflex, uh, not many have, but they are a medical devices company who has used a commitment to a global set of values to bring together disparate companies and knit them all together in a way that's outperformed the market. Cam talks about values, why they matter, how you create common ones in a global organization, and how they help you during difficult times. I look forward to welcoming you back to the conversation.